First Amendment's dual protections for free exercise and no establishment of religion. And I think some of the handouts are coming around, but if you want to try to follow along a little, um, we do have this handout, What is Religious Liberty? We developed this resource a couple of years ago, actually um, just before I uh, came to the BJC as Executive Director, because that's when we really started noticing rampant confusion about what even we're talking about when it comes to religious liberty. We're still working on boiling this down even more into our seven-second attention span culture that we live in. Um, it's a struggle, though, because as we'll find out as we talk tonight, this is complicated work, particularly from a legal perspective. Um, but I think that this handout, which you're getting, and which we also have on our website, is really helpful when we're starting to have conversations with people about what we mean when we talk about religious liberty. So that's why we do the work that we do. I want to talk a little bit about who we are. Um, we get the question, maybe you've heard it before yourself, what kind of Baptist are you? Right? And so when we get that question, we can say, well, we're about 14 different kinds of Baptists. And that's the Baptist Joint Committee. That's the joint part of our name. Um, so we have us about 14, diff 14 different Baptist denominations that come together to support our work. Um, those include the CBF and Texas Baptist, um, denominations that you all are familiar with, um, but others that are across the country and across the spectrum of Baptist life. Uh, and they come together, and if you're curious about what ex who exactly those groups are, um, in the back we do have some of our magazine report from the Capitol. All of our supporting bodies are listed on the back of there. But they, you know, if there are 14 of them, they obviously don't agree on everything. That's why there are 14 different kinds. But they do agree on the importance of religious liberty for all. And they can join us and join together um, in that work. We're also supported by about 200 churches a year from across the country, as well as about 1,000 individuals, including um, some uh, here tonight. So I want to thank you for your generous support of our work um, that makes all of this possible. So why? Why do all these people come together about religious liberty for all? Why is this such an important Baptist distinctive? Well, I usually give three answers. It's our theology, it's our experience, and it's our commitment to the constitutional democracy. First, starting with theology, it really begins in the beginning, in the very first chapter of Genesis. God created humans in God's image, male and female. And what's one of the very first things that those humans did? They disobeyed God, right? God could have created robots who were perfectly perfect in every way, and God didn't do that. God created humans who could say yes to God, who could say no to God, and who could suffer all the consequences of those decisions. Um, and that is the kind of freedom that we Baptists in part call soul freedom. Um, and that is one of our theological bases. Another theological basis that we have um, comes from the gospel. Um, and the theme that tends to run throughout the Bible of living in two kingdoms. You know, in the last week of Jesus' life, um, the Pharisees and the Herodians come together to try to trap Jesus. And these two opposing camps have joined forces um, 
to, um, to trap him with the question, um, the topic of paying taxes. And so you, um, so the question was, they come to them and say, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? And it's really a very cunning trap because if he says yes, he's going to ruin his credibility with the Jewish people. And if he says no, then the Romans are going to charge him with treason. But Jesus, aware of their malice, according to Matthew's Gospel, had the perfect answer. And he made them give it to him. They asked, he asked for a coin, and he held it up and said, whose head is this on this coin? And they said, the emperor. And he said, so render to the, emperor's things, to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. And of course, Jesus' answer is more than an answer to the question of tax obligation. It gets to the heart of the tension we continue to find ourselves in today of being citizens of two kingdoms. An earthly kingdom ruled by government and God's kingdom, which claims a higher citizenship. And we have to work out our allegiances to both of those. Um, an institutional church that becomes beholden to an institutional state does not comport well with this two-kingdom philosophy. And so we see the roots of separation of church and state in the very words of Jesus in this answer um, that he gives in the Gospels. Well, just a few verses down um, from that uh, teaching moment, um, we see more roots to our understanding of religious liberty in Jesus' teaching of the greatest commandment. Of course, the Pharisees come back, and this time they send in their lawyer to trick Jesus. So I associate a little bit with that um, with that person. And he says, which commandment is the greatest? And of course, you all know, Jesus quotes back the Torah to them um, in Deuteronomy's command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And then he adds his twist, um, another way to see the commandment in our earthly context, to... With the second one like it, to love your neighbor like yourself. And so when we look back to our first theological basis of freedom, we start seeing a golden rule of religious liberty emerging. That loving our neighbor means standing up for and protecting their freedom as we would protect our own. So don't ask government to promote your religion if you don't also want government to promote your neighbor's religion. And in the same way, don't ask government to hinder your neighbor's religion if you don't want government to hinder your own religion. We also find a theological basis for, for freedom in, um, in Paul and his letter to the Galatians. Um, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Use that freedom to show love for your neighbor. So our understanding and our concept of religious freedom comes straight from our understanding of soul freedom and all of these other um, theological bases that, I've, that I have quoted tonight. So I want to fast forward on the second reason that all Baptists care about religious liberty for all. Um, we're going to fast forward from Genesis and Jesus and Paul, and we're going to get all the way into the early 17th century in England. And Baptists were just in their infancy and were not popular at all. Um, and one of the co-founders of the Baptist movement was Thomas Hellwitz. Uh, and in 1609, he wrote um, this, which I've updated a little bit. It's 400 years old. 
but not very much. He said, for people's religion to God is between God and themselves. The king shall not answer for it. Neither may the king be judged between God and person. Let them be heretics, Turks, which was what they called Muslims, Jews, or whatsoever. It appertains not to the earthly power to punish them in the least measure. This is made evident to our Lord the King by the scriptures. And this he wrote um, in, uh, to, in his uh, manuscript that he gave to King James I. And evidently this was not a popular message with King James I. And Thomas Elvis was arrested and died in prison when he was 40 years old. Um, for speaking truth to power and telling the king that he couldn't um, enforce uh, his religion on or persecute uh, those minority religions. Well, um, we're going to go across the Atlantic now and to another Baptist forebear, Roger Williams. Uh, truth be told, Roger Williams was a lifelong seeker. Um, I are. Uh, BJC has Sheridan lectures, and uh, this year Charles Haynes um, did his uh, lecture on Roger Williams. It's on our website if you're interested. It's a wonderful lecture. But he said he thought that Roger Williams spent about six months as a Baptist. Um, but it was an important six months because in that time he founded the first Baptist church in America. So we can forever claim Roger Williams as a Baptist. And, um, and he's really a, a great person to claim. You know, he came over as a Puritan, um, but was preaching about soul freedom. And so he was kicked out of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Um, and then he found his way to a place he called Providence. Um, and of course, uh, founded what would become Rhode Island as a haven uh, for religious liberty and a home for those who had been religiously persecuted. So, um, he wrote in 1641, It is the will and command of God that since the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus, a permission of the most paganish, Jewish, Turkish, or anti-Christian, that meant Catholic then, consciences and worships be granted in all nations and countries, and they are only to be fought with that sword, which is only in soul matters able to conquer, with the sword of God's spirit, the word of God. I love this because he was definitely a religious exclusivist, right? He thought he was right, whatever faith he happened to be in at that moment. He thought he was right, you know. But he defended the rights of all these other people to follow their conscience and to, and to follow their faith. Well, the experience of colonial Baptists was to find themselves to be minorities in whatever colony they were. They were out of step with the established church, whatever that was. Buddy Sherton, uh, who is a church historian, he wrote in his book, How We Got That Way, if you ever write a historical essay on early Baptist life in either England or the American colonies, a good place to begin your research is in the records of court proceedings, search warrants, and prison records. Um, so I love that, that that just shows um, where Baptists stood at that time. Uh, one uh, Baptist preacher in Virginia, where a lot of those Baptists were being arrested um, for preaching without a license, um, was preacher John Leland. And here is his quote standing up for religious liberty from all, for, for all, from 1791. This was the same year that the First Amendment was ratified. Let every person speak freely without fear, maintain the principles that he believes. 
worship according to his own faith, either one God, three gods, no God, or 20 gods, and let government protect him in doing so. Um, which I just love this quote, because a Baptist preacher standing up for 20 gods, you know, belief in 1791 is, uh, is pretty remarkable. You know, John Leland, um, we talk about, uh, because, because of his geography, because he was preaching in Orange County, Virginia, um, he had really an outsized importance in our constitutional story, because he knew and talked with James Madison. And there's actually, if you ever go to this part of the country, you can visit Leland Madison Park, where uh, legend has it, uh, John Leland lobbied James Madison that said, if you will include freedom of religion in the First Amendment, then I'll deliver the Baptist votes and you can go to the Constitutional Congress. James Madison went to the Constitutional Congress. We have freedom of religion in the First Amendment. I'll let you draw your own conclusions. But um, there, there is some support for this idea. It just shows um, there were also tens of thousands of signatures on Baptist petitions that were supporting the Virginia statute protecting religious freedom, which was the precursor to the First Amendment. So, um, so, so our Baptist forebears helped shape the First Amendment. And um, just so you will, if you learn one thing tonight, I would love for you to learn the first 16 words of the First Amendment. They are also on your handout in a nice blue box right here. Um, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. This is what we call freedom of religion, one of the five freedoms in the First Amendment. And it's important to note that it is supported in our system by two equally important clauses, the no establishment clause and the free exercise clause, that in our pluralistic society, the only way that we can secure religious liberty for all is if the government stays neutral in matters of religion. And that's reflected in the text that was chosen for the First Amendment. So we work at BJC in Washington um, to protect that language and protect this, um, this principle of religious freedom for all. Um, we have a handout here that kind of highlights our different work. Um, we are located in offices right on Capitol Hill, right across from um, the Supreme Court and from the Hart Senate building. I know Dr. Williamson is familiar with our buildings, uh, or our location in our building. Has anyone else been to the BJC before? Yeah, great. Um, well, we, if you haven't, we would love to have you there. Um, it, we, it, you'll see um, one of the pictures here is my colleague, Charles Watson Jr., who is teaching in our multimedia conference room. We welcome groups um, of all kinds to our, uh, to our offices to teach about religious liberty for all. We have about 25 different groups that visit us um, each year. So we would love to have you. I'm just going to go through um, some of the work that we do quickly. I'm going to start um, with litigation, so I'm going to go into some of these a little bit more in depth. So we don't, I, I am one of three lawyers on staff at the Baptist Joint Committee. We do not actually file lawsuits. 
Um, but we do file friend of the court or amicus briefs in church state cases. In fact, we have filed a friend of the court brief in almost every church state case that has come before the Supreme Court since 1947. We also file other briefs in lower courts, you know, when our voice is really um, needed. We provide um, our Holly and um, Jennifer Cox, Paula Holman and Jennifer Cox, our associate um, counsel, who's also pictured in this uh, picture outside the Supreme Court. Um, they, can, they provide uh, legal guidance to churches and pastors and lay people who have church state questions. They'll call us and we can um, provide some guidance as well. Um, I'm going to skip to mobilization, which is um, here at the bottom. This is one of our newest areas of work, the Baptist Joint Committee, where we are equipping our supporters to be advocates for religious liberty in their communities. And we have uh, a brand new staff member, she hasn't even started yet, actually, but who um, spent a lot of time here in Waco that you might know, Christine Browder, is our new Associate Director of Mobilization. She worked for many years at the Texas Hunger Initiative, uh, mobilizing people for action, and um, we're so fortunate she's going to bring her skills to bear on, on our cause in just a couple of weeks. Um, I'm going to go a little bit more in-depth on the work that we do in our education. Um, so I mentioned report from the Capitol. Um, we have copies in the back. How many people here already get a report from the Capitol? Great, great. Well, if you would like, you all may receive it. All you have to do is sign up um, in the back. And we, uh, it's a magazine we mail um, out to homes uh, six times a year. And then we also have an electronic version that we can send that um, is with your tablet as well. This provides commentary and news on church state um, church state matters. We have a great website, bjconline.org, um, that has a lot of resources on there about our topic, and would encourage you to visit that. We also have a blog, and, full, and a part-time BJC blogger who blogs several times a week um, to keep up with the most current uh, news that's coming out. Um, we have, and I have flyers for both of these programs, I think, in the back. Um, we have an internship program and a BJC Fellows program. So uh, the internship program is near and dear to my heart. I was, I got my start at BJC as a BJC intern when I was a college student. Uh, but we have internship programs every academic semester, so fall, spring, and summer. We bring two, um, usually college students, grad students, or recent graduates of either. Um, will come to Washington to work with us for the semester. We provide free housing on Capitol Hill, which is pretty expensive, as you might understand, and a small stipend, so you won't starve while you're there. Um, it's, but, but it's just, most DC internships are unpaid, nothing, so um, it is a wonderful uh, educational experience, so would encourage you, if you're interested, to pick up a flyer. In fact, we also have a BJC Fellows Program, and this is for people who are in the first six years of their current profession, who are really interested in going more in-depth on church-state issues and wanting to work with us in um, some advocacy roles that we have. So we um, select 10 people a year, and we go to Colonial Williamsburg for a four-day intensive seminar with experts on the field, and it's a really nice um, you know, relationship building experience with that cohort, and then we, these are kind of our frontline advocates to 
who go out to their communities and spheres of influence. We now have 40 BJC fellows uh, who are around the country, I think in maybe 18 different states. Um, so if that's of interest for you, know of someone who might be a great candidate for that. I hope you'll share that. We'll be starting to accept applications again on December 1st for BJC fellows for next summer. Um, we also have an essay contest, and this is open to all um, juniors and seniors in high school. So, and this, and it usually is, I think the topic is announced in January, and um, they're due around spring break, uh, but we just welcomed our uh, first prize winner, gets a trip to Washington, and $2,500. Um, and when we started this program several years ago, you know, it was a pretty small pool. I think last year we had 450 entries. Um, so, uh, you know, no Baptist requirement to win. In fact, the last several years have not been Baptists who have won. Um, last year, our winner was a Muslim young woman. Our topic was, should religion be used um, in U.S. immigration policy? And she wrote a beautiful essay called Compassion Before Fear. And when she came to accept the award, we asked her, um, well, what did you learn about Baptists as part of the writing process? And she said, well, I learned that you have my back, you know, which we, I really loved. That um, this year, our young, the young woman who won, Morgan Lynn, um, who is now in, oh, used her Ahmed, who won last year. She's a sophomore at the University of Chicago. Laura, Laura, Lynn, Laura Ann Lynn, who won this year, um, is uh, a freshman at Wellesley College, and she doesn't really claim a faith background, as a lot of young people do, and we asked her, what did you learn about Baptists as part of the process, and she said, that Baptists care about religious liberty, um, and so I think this is a great educational experience um, for the applicants um, as well, it's, it's what they can learn about, not just our topic, but about Baptists. Um, I want to switch now to talk about some of our legislative work. My background is I did, um, as Mary Alice said, I did spend several years working for a member of Congress who represents the Austin and San Antonio area. And so I came to the BJC with quite a bit of legislative experience. My uh, last uh, job that I worked with him, I was his Ways and Means Council, which means I uh, did tax policy. Um, I did not study tax in that school. I kind of wish I did once I had that job. I studied constitutional law more. Um, and when I left that, I thought, I'm never going to work on tax policy again. And what's the first legislative issue that comes up for me in the Baptist Joint Committee? It's a tax issue. So um, all of those relationships I made and, and experience I, um, that I came with really um, has served me well. The issue that we have been working on most um, in Congress since I came to the Baptist Front Committee is supporting the Johnson Amendment. And I hope that you've all got this flyer. Um, this is a resource that we developed um, for talking points on this issue, and, and we have a lot of information on our website about our work around the Johnson Amendment. Just so I can get a sense of kind of where you all are, is this, when I say Johnson Amendment, is that familiar to you? You've heard about that? Yeah. Um, I always ask, because if we had had this meeting three years ago, and I said, do you know about the Johnson Amendment? Probably blank stares. I would have said, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, that's because it really wasn't under threat then, and also because it really wasn't even called the Johnson Amendment then. 
So when that, that term really stands for a provision in the tax code that separates partisan campaigning from 501c3 organizations. So just a little tax law 101 about 501c3s. Uh, that comes from the section code in the U.S. tax code. 501c3s are religious, educational, scientific, and a host of other kinds of nonprofit charitable organizations. Um, they are considered they have the most favored tax status of any corporation um, in the tax code. That's because they are tax exempt. They don't have to pay state, local, and national taxes and property taxes and things like that. But more importantly, their donors get a tax deduction for giving to 501c3s. We all know this. Of course, the church is a, is a 501c3. Almost all churches are 501c3 organizations. Part of what also defines being a 501c3 organization ever since 1954 is also this provision that says that these organizations will not participate or intervene in <coughs> campaigns for public office. Um, and so that part of the tax code that says no partisan campaigning in 501c3s has been come to be called the Johnson Amendment. The reason is because then Senate Minority Leader Lyndon Baines Johnson was the person who put forward this proposal. Um, but it was non-controversial when it was introduced. It passed overwhelmingly without, without floor debate at the time. Um, and it was a Republican uh, Senate, a Republican House, and a Republican President. Um, in the 1980s, um, this provision was strengthened even more with a Democratic House, Republican Senate, and Republican President. So it's been a bipartisan, non-controversial part of the tax code for more than 60 years. Um, that changed um, last, well, it really started in 2016, but I can tell you the date, February 2nd, 2017, at the National Prayer Breakfast, President Trump said he was going to get rid of, this is the quote, get rid of and totally destroy the Johnson Amendment. Um, that has not come to pass, um, in part because of efforts from the BJC and other groups like it um, who have said, no, we want to keep the Johnson Amendment. Um, and the reason, and that's kind of laid out here in this document, is that we think that changing the law is unnecessary, unwise, and unwanted, but otherwise it's a great idea. Right? But we have a lot of reasons front and back about why we don't want to change the law. And, and first up is, is how unnecessary it is. And that's because of all of the activity that, that churches can do right now and other 501c3 organizations um, without changing the law. And I find it really helpful to differentiate between being political and being partisan. Because a lot of the talking points we get from the other side are really about being political, about speaking about controversial issues, even from the pulpit, right? Um, and that is nothing about that violates the Johnson Amendment. What vi would violate the Johnson Amendment is actually going to the next step in endorsing or opposing a candidate for office. And that would constitute participating or intervening in the campaign. Um, but so, political speech, not a problem. Nonpartisan political activity, not a problem. So, 
if nonpartisan voter registration, voter education, uh, you know, having candidates come speak, hosting a candidate forum, passing out voting guides, as long as it doesn't appear that the organization is trying to endorse a candidate subtly in that, in whatever activity it is, then you're not going to run afoul of the Johnson Amendment. Also, religious leaders in their personal capacity without using the resources of 501c3 can get involved in partisan ways in campaigns. We see that. We see religious leaders endorsing candidates. We see religious leaders running for office. So to do all of this activity, we do not need a change in the law. Um, we, we don't want a change in the law because we think it's a really bad idea. And I, I think if we opened it up, you all would have a lot of personal reasons why you might think it's a bad idea. I've come up with six that I've kind of boiled down. Um, one, we hear from a lot of people, well, if you don't want to, you just don't have to. We can change the law, and the churches that want to get involved in campaigns can, and those who don't won't. But we worry that if the law were changed, we'd start seeing a lot of pressure coming from campaigns and from their candidates and from wealthy donors for the churches to get involved in campaigns. And that will become an issue in the church. Do we get involved or do we not? And all the rancor that would come from that decision. We also worry about divisions in congregations, right? That these are some of the last places that people who don't necessarily vote the same way come together. Um, but if, if the church or other organizations were taking um, partisan positions, that you'd start having a first Democratic church and a first Republican church, and we would not be worshiping together. Also, we'd be distracted from the core mission of being church, right? Churches are not PACs and don't want to be, but this would effectively turn churches into political campaigns. Um, we also worry from a religious liberty perspective about risking the independence and the prophetic voice of the church, that this would tie the churches too much uh, with particular, to particular campaigns or to particular candidates, um, and that would risk the strong prophetic voice of the church. And then the last two are really mirror images of each other. Um, one is we might see increased IRS enforcement into church affairs, because the actual legislative proposals that have been put forward would not say, churches go at it, do as much political campaigning as you want. They say something that says, you can do campaigning as long as it's a de minimis part of your work, and it's only you only incur incremental expenses. But the terms de minimis and incremental are not defined in the legislation that's put out, which means it would be up to the IRS to both define those terms and then enforce them. And the only way you're going to enforce that is by doing things like asking for the text of your sermon, looking into the books of the church to determine whether you're going over the line. So that's one possibility. And that kind of church-state entanglement is very troubling. And we would be firmly against that. I don't think that is really what would happen. And neither do the estimators at Congress. They think instead we would not see much IRS enforcement in this area, but we would see a lot more activity, and that would result in billions of dollars in campaign money being funneled through the nonprofit sector, including churches. 
And so, in fact, the, um, this, this provision was attempted to be put into the tax bill at the end of last year, and the nonpartisan budget estimators up there said that in the first five years, they expected six to eight billion dollars in campaign money going through the 501c3 sector. Fortunately, this that did not get included in the final version of the tax bill, and the Johnson Amendment is still on the books, and it is thanks um, to the faith community really rallying behind it, and, so, and in addition to the nonprofit community, and we have worked in coalition as we have over many years um, with other groups to defend current law. Um, to date, more than 100 denominational and religious organizations have united around current law, and more than 4,500 faith leaders have signed on to a petition that they want to keep current law. And so you each should have gotten, and if you didn't, there in the back, a little postcard for Faith Voices. So the website is faith-voices.org, and the text of the petition is on the back of the card. Um, but if this is of an interest to you, and uh, we know that this is for faith leaders to sign, and in our Baptist um, bodies. We are all leaders, um, lay leaders or clergy can sign on to this. Um, and you can add your name. This is a tool that we use in our advocacy. When we go to talk to members of Congress, we will print off all the signers from Texas and say, here are your constituents um, who care about this issue. And I think that this has been a really um, powerful way to advocate. Um, and that gets to the last um, about how unwanted this really is. You know, I talked about the groups and the individuals, but just in polling, um, when they've asked about this, whether it be uh, a more conservative or a more liberal polling, large majorities of Americans support current law and oppose open endorsements. And um, so if this were to change, it really would be against um, the weight of American opinion on this. And so I'm hopeful that we're going to be able to continue um, to keep this on the books, but it, was, um, it has remained a top priority for both the president and the vice president and for some members um, of Congress. And so we really need your help to keep it on the books. So I thought I would just stop there and welcome any questions you have about anything I mentioned and any other court cases or anything that you're interested in. I'll do my best. We've got a mic, and I can walk around and bring the mic to you as well. Chadwick. Thank you so much, Ms. Tyler. We appreciate, uh, appreciate your speech. Uh, what do you all do? Didn't Trump, President Trump, rather, didn't he come out recently and say the Johnson Amendment's been repealed? I mean, he sort of came out there and made this wild statement that he had, in fact, uh, removed it. And how do we react in the face of that sort of Boy, just a basic denial of the facts on the ground. Yeah, that's a great. Um, so I reacted by tweeting, because isn't that how mature people react? <laughs> um, yeah, actually, and I should, I meant to do this yesterday at the lecture when I had a lot of potential followers in my audience, but um, we are on social media, and I'm on Twitter at, at Amanda Tyler, BJC. I'd love for you to follow. Um, we, we set the record straight. You know, when those statements are made. And, and what he is referring to, probably, or would refer back to, um, was last May, May 2017, he put out an executive order 
on religious liberty, and I wrote a column about that and how it's not comporting with my idea of religious liberty, but in that um, was a provision that directed the IRS, I'm not going to remember the exact term right now, but it's something like, you know, don't discriminate against churches as you apply current law. And so we said, you're just, they're not discriminating churches. The Johnson Amendment applies to all 501c3s equally. And the text of the order said, as directed by current law. And um, there was a group, so we all, everyone said, There's, they're not doing anything here. Um, there's a litigation group you might have heard of called Freedom From Religion Foundation. You know, we don't always agree with all the cases they bring. Well, we did not agree with this one. So they filed suit over this provision, you know, saying he was repealing the Johnson Amendment. And Trump's Justice Department came to court and said, no, no, we didn't do anything in that executive order. So his, his own administration is filing, you know, papers in court that says that his order didn't accomplish anything. Um, so, you know, we tried just to point out, you know, the, the facts because, um, but it is difficult when there are falsehoods being said about what has been done. Thanks for the question. I've seen several things on the internet, Grum, about uh, fear of Muslims and their belief in the Sharia law, I think I said it correctly. And um, we're told on many fronts that if we don't stand against the Muslims, that they will come in and implement all of these things that are against our way of life, our beliefs. But as I read this handout, I'm thinking that that would be impossible to see it play out like that in the United States. Is that correct? That's right. I mean, I think we do see a lot of fear-mongering out there, especially around the word Sharia law. Um, and there have been some, um, I think it was in Oklahoma a few years ago, um, some attempts um, to legislate in this area that failed, you know, to, to declare, um, you know, to, to put down Sharia law or take some kind of position on it. But that's right. You know, our government remains neutral in matters of religion um, and would, would not, you know, take a position on religious law like that. And we, we would support the right of um, Muslims to practice their faith. And if that includes, you know, their own, you know, sorry, religious tribunals, you know, as a lot of religions have their own tribunals um, to determine religious matters, um, that they would be, have the freedom to do so. Um, just as we all have the freedom to exercise our rights as long as they don't violate the rights of someone else. And that the government has a compelling interest to, to protect the health and safety and, um, and the rights of third parties. So we would, just like everyone's rights are not unlimited, right, that, that, um, but that we would support those free exercise rights for Muslims. Wonderful. Well, I've just so appreciated the chance to be with you and to talk about our work. And I, I do hope um, that you'll sign up in the back. And even if you don't want to get the report from the Capitol in the mail, sign up to get our emails. We really just send out a few emails a month. Um, we will not overwhelm you. 
Um, but so you can stay up to date on our work. Um, we really value the partnership of, of uh, all of our churches and, um, and just this relationship that we have here. And um, you do have a special place in my heart uh, because of Julie uh, PR and also because of being here in Texas. So thank you so much for having me.